I spoke before about the all-encompassing demands of the Eucharist and liturgy and its centrality to our entire life. It is truly the foundation and heartbeat of the Church, and indeed of all creation. Church documents make this abundantly clear, and we can use familiar phrases like source and summit, real presence, holy sacrifice of the Mass, and Paschal mystery. The reality, however, is that it can be a challenge to remain attentive to what is really happening in the liturgy and to be attuned to Christ's presence in the Eucharist. The most sacred substance of our faith can be reduced to a thing, a set of rubrics to follow, an event to get through, or perhaps an obligation that eats into our day. Despite our best intentions, we can find it hard to resist the lure of casual complacency that is to some degree inherent in a ceremonial ritual carried out day after day. And of course, this is just a natural limitation of being human. If God wanted us to live in the constant contemplation of a static prayer, he would have made us angels. He didn't. Probably with good reason. And I certainly don't mean to suggest that God's power or presence is in any way reduced by our deficiencies in sanctity or concentration. But the real danger is that we can think about the Eucharist as if it were a thing instead of a person. It becomes something to be scheduled and managed. Our participation in the Mass, where God himself is made present in the hands of the priest, can fall into mere muscle memory where we go through the motions but are absent in mind and spirit. I don't say this in condemnation because it is such a powerful example of the poverty and intimacy of God. The creator of the universe comes to us in such a simple way. He makes himself so small and fragile and humble. He allows himself to be overlooked and forgotten. Only this most perfect love can touch our human freedom with such delicate tenderness. It is a love that invites and entices a love that is more patient with us than we are with ourselves. It is this love which is present in each host, for God is love, and the Eucharist is a condensation of love in which we consume him who desires nothing more than to consume us. By allowing Christ to enter and be absorbed into our very being, he is also drawing us ever deeper into his own heart. It is this paradoxical interiority that lies at the heart of the Eucharist and the heart of Christ. The rites and rubrics are important, but it is only when we plunge into the intimate depths of the reality of God and man that the Eucharist is transformed into relationship. With that in mind, I would like to continue with the story of Hezekiah and his liturgical reforms. The priest went into the interior of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanliness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the Wadi Kidron. They began to sanctify on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days they sanctified the house of the Lord and on the sixteenth day of the first month they finished. Then they went to Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, 
the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the table for the showbread and all its utensils. All the utensils which King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and sanctified, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was seventy bulls, a hundred rams, and two hundred lambs. All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated offerings were six hundred bulls and three thousand sheep. But the priests were too few and could not flay all the burning offerings. So until other priests had sanctified themselves, their brothers the Levites helped them until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in sanctifying themselves. Beside the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, and there were the libations for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because of what God had done for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. Hezekiah begins his liturgical reform by cleansing and consecrating the temple and then conducting the great rite of expiation in which the priest and the Levites are sanctified and dedicated to the Lord. This grand triumphal moment sets the stage for the celebration of the Passover, which had likely not been observed in Jerusalem through generations. These verses are full of details about the restoration of the temple furnishings, the extravagant sacrifices, the music, and the fervor of worship and thanksgiving. And yet, before any of this took place, we are told that the priests entered the interior of the Lord's house to cleanse it. Whatever they found that was unclean, they brought out to the court of the Lord's house, where the Levites carried it to the Wadi Kidron. It's easy to skim over this as a mere perfunctory detail, introducing the real center of the narrative, namely the upcoming celebration and ceremony. Yet there is so much in just this single verse that is worth reflecting on. First, we see that the priest entered the interior of the temple to cleanse it. Over the course of eight days, they penetrated deeper into the temple and brought whatever was unclean out into the open. This interior purification also needs to happen in our own hearts. We all have things hidden away that need to be brought out into the open, and especially as clergy, we should be accustomed to delving into the interior parts of our hearts. But we also know all too well the pain and discomfort this can cause. It is easy to close the doors and let things pile up in the darkness, to polish and whitewash the outside, while the sacred tools of the Lord's service grow dank and dusty within. I suspect that all of us have parts of our heart that are closed off like the temple was. Perhaps some of us live in the suffocating confines of a heart that is blocked and barricaded, stifled with fear and shame and regret. 
we need to be willing to enter into the temple of our own hearts and pull out into the light all those things that make us unclean. But not all hidden things are evil. The priest and the Levites also reclaimed and restored the sacred utensils of the altar, the hidden treasures of gold and silver that had been shut away and forgotten. Our hearts are also full of these treasures, these parts of us that we have locked away. For every time we close a door, we exile part of our humanity, a part of us that was created by God for his good purpose and for our own happiness. Every closed door is a wound that seeks to be acknowledged, accepted, and healed. Perhaps there was a time when we had opened up these places and held out the precious treasures of our heart, only to find them rejected, reviled, or misunderstood. And so, the best parts of us can become places of darkness and shame. We see them as unlovable, and we close them away, concealing them with superficial solaces like alcohol, mindless entertainment, pornography, or busyness. We can become so focused on ministering to those around us that we forget the poverty within us. I suspect that there are many of us who, upon reflection, would discover that the least of all brethren actually lives within themselves, that we stand in need of our own kindness and mercy, and that we can forgive anyone except ourselves. Some of us are all too aware of the slums of our hearts, the poverty-stricken ghetto of our soul, that if we're being honest, we sometimes doubt even Christ can redeem or love. It is the enemy who wants to separate us from our own heart, to bring about disintegration, discouragement, and despair. But these vulnerable and tender things are our greatest treasures, because these places are where we meet God and where God meets us. For God came to us where we really are, in our broken dreams, our lost hopes, and the despair of inadequacy. These are what we lock away and hide, even from God. And these are the things that God most desires. It is God who reveals the treasure of little things and enters into them with us to show us how much he loves them. But before the temple could be purified, we read that the first action of Hezekiah was to force open the doors of the temple. I am reminded of Isaiah's prophecy in which God says to Cyrus, I will go before you, bronze doors I will shatter, iron bars I will snap. I will give you treasures of darkness, riches hidden away, that you may know I am the Lord. The interior purification and the discovery of riches hidden away can only take place once the Lord has broken down the doors and shed light on what lies inside. There are many kinds of doors, but ultimately, they are all constructions of the enemy to separate us from God and to exile us from the interior of our heart, that vulnerable place where we can be most easily wounded, and yet that place where we were created in love and for love. It is only once God breaks open the barriers that we can see what has accumulated over the years, the sufferings, the burden, doubts, humiliations, the sins and the uncleanliness we are ashamed to hold out to God, 
the fears of being unloved and unlovable. True reform requires us to descend into the depths and to face what has been hidden away. This must take place within our own hearts, for we are each a temple of the Holy Spirit. It must also take place on a communal level, for we are each a stone in the living temple of the Church. But it is not enough to see these things. Even Satan delights in showing them to us, or at least of keeping their dismal shadows and umbral silhouettes in the back of our mind. Clear enough that we remember our failings before God and hide our face, yet dark enough that we will never really see them for the false and flimsy illusions they are. But Hezekiah's priest pulled everything out into the sunlight and threw what was unclean into the Kidron Valley. And again, this is so significant. It may seem a pedantic and pointless detail, but the upper part of the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem is full of tombs, a place where the dead are laid to rest. So you see, the priest did not just discard what was unclean, they quite literally consigned it to the grave. This is likely the same place where a century and a half earlier, King Jehoshaphat overthrew the enemies of Israel. And so, it signifies not only death, but the Lord's victory over the enemies of his people. The prophet Joel foretells that when the Messiah appears, this valley will be a place where the nations will come to be judged, and Israel restored from her wounds. Joel renames the Kidron Valley the Valley of Decision, from which the Lord will roar from Zion, and all people will know that the Lord is God. And this same Valley of Decision is where Christ endured his own great decision in the Garden of Gethsemane, and chose to enter into the darkness, into the unimaginable interior depths of perfect humanity, by accepting perfect obedience and perfect poverty. It is a place of judgment, but it is also an outpouring of mercy. It is the valley where Christ committed to his passion, in which he began to restore us, not by overcoming evil, but by absorbing it, and taking up our afflictions in his own flesh. This connection between sacrifice and humility, between offering and poverty, is so important. We read about the sheer extravagance of the sacrifices which Hezekiah offered for himself, the priest, and the entire nation. Our liturgy seems to have lost much of this sense of sacrifice. Instead of thousands of animals, we bring up some small pieces of bread and a cruet of wine. But this is not entirely a bad thing, nor is it an accident. Rather, it speaks again to the real mystery of God's love and the value of poverty and littleness. God wants everything, but we can become focused on the big sacrifices we've made, surrendering our lives and freedom to take up holy orders, embracing chastity or obedience to a superior. But if all we do is pat ourselves on the back for these things, we miss the true depths of what God desires. For true surrender to Christ means inviting him into the hidden things, the parts of our heart we don't think he wants to see, or which we are afraid to show him. But God doesn't want a polished veneer. He wants our true treasures, 
our weakness and failures, our poverty and nothingness. This is why Christ became so small and why he takes the form of bread and wine. It is a dangerous thing to be vulnerable, and we all know the pain of being taken advantage of. And there can be a temptation to take advantage of Christ's humility and poverty. We can see the bread and wine and be blind to the body and blood. We can pick and choose our own Jesus. We can try to tame him and reduce him to a benevolent figure of mercy and niceness. We can strip him of his power and eliminate any call to perfection and holiness that threatens our complacency and comfort. We want a God who is content with whitewash. But the Christ of the gospel, who embraces his people with compassion and love, is also the same jealous and omnipotent God of the Old Testament, who can overthrow his enemies and transform the hearts of nations. We can become inured to the presence of God in the Eucharist, but we can also be oblivious to his presence in the church, in the people under our care, and in the world. But just as God makes himself present in the Eucharist, he is also present and working in the world, recreating it and repairing the corruption of original sin. And just as he makes himself vulnerable in the Eucharist, allowing himself to be forgotten, ignored, and disbelieved, so is his presence in the world. But it is the very intimacy and interiority of this love which resonates so deeply with the yearnings of our hearts, for we all desire to be loved in these darkened and desolate places. In every heart there is a fundamental need for relationship, for something beyond ourselves. We long to hear the quiet whisper of someone who cares enough about us to bring us home, the first stirrings of friendship with God. Just as God can do great things in our heart when we open it up to his light, so God wants to do great things in the world which is groaning for him with the pains of labor. The world is full of people looking for meaning and connection, and at every altar, in every tabernacle, every day, we behold the presence of him whom they are seeking. For the Eucharist is the presence of Christ, a person of love itself. The world and our own hearts are in such desperate need for renewal and revival. And once again, the Eucharist is the means by which this happens, not merely the occasion. And in the slow passing of years and the comfortable compromises we make with our own hearts and our conscience, we can relegate revival to a fairy tale or perhaps a naive optimism. We forget about a God who works miracles and turns the tides of nations. We read that Hezekiah rose early in the morning to begin the sacrifices at the newly purified temple. In only two weeks, the nation was transformed from the idolatry of Ahaz and brought to the great day of conversion and repentance. Do we really believe that God can still work like this? Things happened suddenly because Hezekiah awoke the interior desires of his people for true covenant and relationship. God wants to move in the hearts of our people, and he wants to work in your heart. Are you willing to let him in? 
both Hezekiah and Christ give us an example of purifying the temple, of entering into the valley of death, and thus preparing the way for covenant renewal and restoration of life. As clergy dedicated to participating in that same work of Christ, we must be attentive to the doors that God wants to break down. We must be willing to enter into the vulnerable depths of our hearts, illuminate that which needs to be cleansed, and reclaim the hidden treasures we all possess. We must be ready to descend into the valley of decision, endure the painful death of that which must pass away, and rise again to enter more completely into the great mystery of our liturgical life, that sacred action which surpasses all others. <laughs>